Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, that you may be feared. Those are the words that start Psalm 130. And it's an interesting sentence, that last one. With you there is forgiveness that you may be, what? Feared. What comes to your mind when you hear the term, the fear of God? Or the fear of the Lord? Is is the fear of the Lord a positive term or a negative one? (laughs) Frank said yes. The fear of God sounds a bit scary at face value, and make no mistake about it, there are reasons to be afraid of God. There are people who should be afraid of God and what He will do to those who rebel against Him. But the overall picture of the Bible teaches us that the fear of God is a positive thing, a very good thing. The fear of God is actually the path to life. The path to blessing and joy, not cowering and sadness. In Isaiah 66, the Lord says, This is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Fear of the Lord is what promises blessing and communion with the one who made and sustains us. Fear of the Lord is a reminder that He is sovereign over all. And apart from His grace and mercy, we have no hope. We are under Him. Fear of the Lord involves remembering what He has done for us. Remembering that the Lord is our ultimate provider and sustainer. Remembering that the Lord is our rewarder. He is the one who will reward us. The Lord calls us to show grace and kindness to one another in the fear of Him. Which brings us to this morning's passage. We're in week four of our series through the book of Nehemiah. Uh, we're in the, just to give you a little background reminder, it's the year, around the year 445 BC. The Israelites have been granted permission by Artaxerxes, the king of Persia, to rebuild the wall of Jerusalem. It's a massive undertaking. And they are laboring together to do it by the good hand of God. They're laboring amidst threats all around them, as we saw last week. The threats from outside of them. The opposition that that wanted them not to build the wall. But today, we learn of a threat from within. It was not too long ago, uh, about three months ago exactly, uh, almost exactly, that I preached on Acts chapter 6. The mission of the early church was threatened by trouble within. Some of their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. And it was based on social status or ethnic status. Seven men were appointed to ensure fair distribution, that all were cared for, that there would be no lack in the church. And here in Nehemiah, again, we see 
the mission is threatened from within. We know it well, brothers and sisters in Christ, that Satan does some of his most dastardly work by seeking to divide the people of God. It was a time of famine. We can presume that many had left their fields, stopped farming to help build this wall. The people had all come together from all around the Jewish people. And a problem arises that could stop the whole mission. This could could put everything to an end. So this morning we're going to look just two points. The outcry of the people and then the response of both Nehemiah and the people. Okay, And my prayer is that we will see a few things here this morning. First, uh, the Lord desires for all of His people to be provided for. And He often uses His people to provide for His people. To be the means of that provision. I want us also to see that leaders are called to lead in repentance and generosity. I see that in this passage. And leaders are called to set the tone in repentance and generosity. Setting an example for people to follow. I also want us to see that we must be willing to lay down our rights for the good of another. And undergirding all of it is this truth that I started us with. The fear of God reminds us that He will reward our labors. So we're going to look at the outcry and the response. So this chapter starts. Do you still have your Bibles open? Good. Hey, I want to encourage you while you're reopening your Bibles uh, to Nehemiah chapter 5. You started strong with like giving me some feedback on what you were reading throughout the week, and now, now we're, we're in a bit of a dead, dead spot here lately. Uh, so I just want to re-encourage you, read the passage for next week's sermon early in the week. Send along your thoughts, your questions. It really is helpful for me uh, and encouraging for me uh, to, to see that. Now I am going to tell you, this sermon uh, or this series was going to be, there's going to be some surprises and uh, there may be a surprise as to what person is actually presenting the sermon to you next week. I can't tell you anything more than that. It's not Pastor Larry, though he is coming back this week and I am very excited for that. Uh, So, the outcry. This chapter starts with an outcry of the people and their wives. Did you notice that it mentions the people and their wives? I think that's notable. I don't think that's a wasted word. There are no wasted words in Scripture. It's notable to say that there is a unified outcry. There is a major problem at hand. And they're crying out against their own countrymen. During this time of corporate effort, these people had sacrificed a lot to commit to this mission. This corporate mission. And during this time, there's famine in the land. Many are struggling to have enough food to feed their families. People had left their homes and farms to build. And this became an opportunity for the wealthier among them to take advantage. The picture we get in verses 2-5 through is of these poorer Jews being forced to sell their properties. It says in their, their, their uh, verse 3, right? We are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses. Fields, vineyards, and houses. You know what that, that represents? Everything. Everything we have to sustain ourselves, we're giving up. We're mortgaging them 
just to get grain to eat. Who, who's supplying these mortgages? The rich Jews, their, their brethren, are saying, hey, here's an opportunity for us to get wealthy. Er. To give you loans. Yeah, we'll, we'll, loan, we'll buy your property from you. We'll give you a big high interest loan. More than that, there's, there's another thing that they're saying. They're saying they have to sell their children into slavery just to get money to eat. To be clear, the, the slavery we're talking about here is not the, the same as the, you know, the chattel slavery that we saw in America early in our history, the, the wicked uh, form of slavery. This was more of an indentured servitude to pay off debts. It had a wickedness of its own. It is different categorically, but they're selling their children into slavery to pay for food. And who are they selling them to? The rich Jews. They're selling them to their brethren. There's something especially heartbreaking about that, isn't there? When your own people see you not as a human being with dignity and value to the community. Do you see that in verse 5? They say, now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers. They're saying, what? There's no difference between us, but look at what we're having to do just to live. We're contributing to this project just as much as they are, but they're taking advantage of us. And we can't do anything about it. These people saw the poverty of their brethren as an opportunity for profit. Our flesh is so wicked apart from grace, isn't it? The first reaction here was not, how can I help my brother? But instead, how can I profit from this? And I want to be really clear. This passage is not a statement on the, the value or lack of value of capitalism or supply and demand or whatever else you might come up with. This chapter teaches us what life within the people of God ought to look like. And how the thriving of the entire community strengthens them for their mission. Do you see the threat that this poses to the mission? Can you see that in here? Are you alive? Alright, interact with me. Thank you. If this, if this continues to happen, a number of things could happen. First of all, it could just break the backs of the, of the people who have nothing. They might run out of stuff to sell. It could also be an opportunity for an enemy to creep in and on one side or another influence a certain group of people to say like, maybe go to the poorer people and say, you, really? It's better this way? You've lost everything. You want to keep supporting this mission? Or to the richer people, they could go and say like, hey, we could get you even richer. We could exact more. Let's work together in this. It's an opportunity for disunity. It's an opportunity for this whole thing to end. And I want us to see here that, that often the strength of the community is found in laying down your individual rights. Yes, these people were doing some things that were flat out wrong. 
We see scriptural prohibition for, from like high interest loans to your brothers and sisters, right? We see prohibitions of that. But there are probably other things that they felt like, hey, I'm within my rights to do this. I'm giving them money for food. It's, not, it's, it's reasonable that I should expect something back. I could buy their land. I could put their children to work for me. I'm doing a nice thing. I'm providing that finance for them. Within the church, the call, brothers and sisters in Christ, is to lay down your rights for the good of the body. Turn your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, probably some familiar verses for many of us. I'm going to read verses 1 through 11 quickly. This is the Apostle Paul writing. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. Within the church, Paul's saying it. He said it in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. He's talking to the, to the Corinthian church and saying, like, you guys are taking each other to court, to, to worldly courts, to, to, to go after something from each other. And his question to them is, why not what? Rather be wronged. Why not? James talks about it. You know, you, these people who just want more and more. They're getting rich on the backs of the people. And they're, they're moth, their gold is going to be moth-eaten and rusted and destroyed. Paul says there in, in Philippians what we just read, right? If there's any encouragement in Christ, look at how He humbled Himself. Look at how He laid down His rights for the good of His people. The call in the church is often to lay down your rights for the good of your brothers and sisters. And we don't like this idea by nature. But ask yourself this. Where is the Lord calling you to give up what you are entitled to for the good of His people? And consider your Savior. Consider the Lord Jesus. Consider what He forfeited for a time that we might know forgiveness, salvation, and eternal life. 
consider what he had the right to do, yet did otherwise for the good of his people. The people cry out like their forefathers did in slavery in Egypt about a thousand years before. Their cry is ultimately to the Lord, but it comes before the ears of his representative Nehemiah. So what's Nehemiah's response going to be? The way that leaders respond in times of trial and crisis sets the tone for their people's response. So we have this outcry. It comes to Nehemiah. What's he going to do? And the first thing we see about Nehemiah in this passage is what? What's his reaction? He's very angry. If you've been tracking with us through Nehemiah, anger is mentioned a number of times throughout the book of Nehemiah. Contrast this with the anger we saw last week from Samballot and Tobiah in chapter 4, right? They were angry in a wicked way. They were angry because they were opposing the work of God. The work of God was making them angry. Here, Nehemiah is righteously angry. There is such a thing as righteous anger. Did you know that? You know that feeling that, that rises up with you, within you when something is just not right? When you see, a, maybe it's a story on the news or you see something happen around you and something bubbles up with, within you that you're like, this is not right. This is not good. Oftentimes, our even our righteous anger is mingled with unrighteous anger at the same time. But there is something good about being disturbed by injustice. That's a good thing, to be disturbed by injustice. Now, not everything that our society calls injustice is injustice. I want to be very clear about that. We call a lot of things just that are wicked in our society. However, let's focus on this passage and the people of God. What does justice and love look like within the people of God? And we should be disturbed if there is injustice within the community of faith, within the local church. We should be disturbed by it. Justice within the people of God looks like genuine care. Making sure all needs are met. Making sure that nobody goes without. No priority or favor for the haves and the have over the have-nots. All are cared for. All are provided for. That the mission of God and His people may be carried out joyfully together. It means not taking advantage of the weakness of others. It means keeping an eye out for who might be the most vulnerable and surrounding them with love and care. And that is not happening here, which makes Nehemiah angry. So in verse 7, it says, he took counsel with himself. What's that? Yeah, he took counsel with himself to settle himself down. He's angry. It means he didn't fly off the handle. It means he didn't get angry and say the first thing that came to his mind. 
He didn't express his anger with some gut reaction. He carefully considered his response. Proverbs 29.11 says, A fool gives full vent to his spirit, but a wise man quietly holds it back. So Nehemiah takes counsel with himself. Probably encourages himself with the truth of Scripture. Probably prays to God like we've seen him do throughout this book. Help me to respond rightly. And so he brings the charge before the guilty parties. Let's look at verses 7-9 through again. I took counsel with myself and I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. I said to them, you are exacting interest, each from his brother. And I held a great assembly against them and said to them, We, as far as we are able, have bought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations. But you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us. They were silent and could not find a word to say. So I said, The thing that you are doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies? Note, that he touches... Actually, I want to make clear also. The the fact that they were selling each other into slavery, Nehemiah points out something here. He said that a lot of these people, some of these people that you're selling into slavery, we had already bought back from slavery from the nations around us. And now you're selling them to each other. And note that he touches on their lack of fear of God in their actions. How would the fear of God have prevented this? We're going to get to that later. Doing what is right would also prevent the taunts of their enemies. Enemies seek opportunities to exploit the cracks in our foundation. That's true in sports. That's true in business. That's true in life. And that's true in the church. The enemy will seek to exploit cracks. The enemy will seek to divide, to steal, to kill, and to destroy. The name and fame of the Lord is at stake here. Did you notice in this passage that Nehemiah does not exclude himself from guilt in this matter? Verse 10, Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them grain. Let us abandon this exacting of interest. There's been a lot of let us in this book. And here Nehemiah takes the lead in repenting. Leaders do this. Leaders are fallible. While church leaders are to be exemplary, we are still fallible. And the way that church leaders model repentance sets the tone for the whole congregation. Nehemiah has been confronted with his people's shortcomings and sin, and he's wrapped up in it. He's saying, we've been been given some loans too. Our people have been given some loans. The human tendency, especially in leadership, I think, this is a temptation. The human tendency is toward hiding, blame-shifting, or even using your position of authority to hush the accusations. But here, Nehemiah confesses it. Not only does he confess the sin, but he models repentance for his people. Repentance is not just feeling bad for something. Do you know that? 
Repentance is not just feeling bad. Repentance means turning away from one thing and doing something different, right? The response is to abandon the exacting of interest, return the people's fields, vineyards, olive orchards, and homes, and the interest that they had paid. It's not just, oh, I feel bad about that, like, so I'll try not to do that anymore. You know, imagine if I had stolen your car, right? And, I'm, and I say like, ah, man, I feel so bad about that. I'm really, really sorry I stole your car. And then I hop in the driver's seat and drive away in your car. Have I repented? Is that repentance? Of course not. Repentance before God means confessing our sin and our unbelief. Seeking the forgiveness that is found in Christ alone. Realizing that we can do nothing to merit or earn that forgiveness or make up for that sin and resting in Christ's finished work. Then praying for the grace to live differently going forward. By the Holy Spirit's power, we are able to walk in newness of life. Repentance before people means confessing what we have done to hurt them and then changing our behavior. Nehemiah leads the people in a path of repentance. Pray for us as leaders at Joy. Modeling repentance is difficult for all sorts of reasons. Many of them tied to our own personal pride. But gospel-rooted repentance is part of healthy leadership and a healthy body. Nehemiah's repentance helps lead the people to repent. He sets the tone and calls them to follow. He tells them what to do, and they, what do they say? That's a beautiful part of this passage, of this whole book. Right? He tells them what they should do, and what do they say to him? Okay, we'll do it. We will restore these and require nothing from them. We will do as you say. That's all they say. You told us where we were wrong, and we're going to do what you say. Now, we're going to learn later in Nehemiah, repentance isn't a long-lasting thing for this nation. Uh, but, but in this passage, where we are today, they're saying, we'll do as you say. We were wrong. We've mistreated our brothers and sisters, and we will make it right. It is better to walk in the fear of the Lord. Better to show love for the Lord and our brethren than it is to amass fortunes for ourselves. Better to trust that the Lord sees and will reward. Right? That's one of the, that's one of the struggles in this area. And we're going to get to this in a second. But like, one of the reasons we're hesitant in some of these areas, especially as it pertains to money and stuff, is that we think by hanging on to it, we get more. That's a lie. Nehemiah calls in the priests to attest to this vow that these people are making, that they're going to repent, they're going to restore. He makes the people vow. He gives them this odd imagery, right? He, he says, I shake out the fold of my garment. So you're going to be shaken out. What's going on there? 
Well, a lot of times these people would actually literally be carrying stuff in the fold of their garment. That's how they would, that's what they, that was their shopping bag. You know, we might start do that. Now we can't use plastic bags anymore. We just wear tunics to shop right and carry this stuff out. Uh, but that's what they would do. They, that, so Nehemiah is giving them a visible pointer to say, this is what the Lord is going to do to you if you go back on this vow. If you say, you know what, I want to exact a little bit of interest from my brethren. I want to, I want to buy some of their stuff back. The Lord will shake out your, he'll, he'll take everything from you if you go back on this vow. They make this vow, there's a corporate confession, they actually repent, and it all leads to what? Praise, right? Verse 13, the end of verse 13, all the assembly said amen, and they praised the Lord, and they did as they had promised. It leads to corporate praise, corporate worship, and a corporate unity in, in the, the task again. They will not be divided. They will continue this work. That's the beauty that, that comes out of generosity within the body, of corporate care for one another, is that we are reminded that we are on a mission together, given to us by God, and we do not want to let anything hinder us from what He has called us to as a body. But Nehemiah uh, not only leads the people in repentance, but I, I see him here leading the people in generosity, which is the flip side of the repentance. So there is the confession of the sin. And now what will they do in turn? Nehemiah leads the people in generosity. We see in verses 14 to 18, he is, he is appointed the governor of Judah for 12 years. And as the governor of Judah, he had the right to assess a tax on the people so that he could get his daily provisions of food. He had the right to do that, and it seems that the governors before him had done that. But Nehemiah does not do that. Because of the situation, because of the needs already outlined, Nehemiah does not exercise his right to tax. Beyond that, he says in verse 16, he continued to build the wall with his people, right? He continued to, he didn't acquire any land. He didn't take anybody's land from him. All my servants were gathered there for the work. He kept his hand to the plow. He didn't do what he was entitled to do. And even beyond that, he provided daily food for how many people? Over 150 at whose expense? At his own expense. For 12 years. He lists what the daily provisions were. That's a lot of stuff. But at his own expense. And he did it because the service was too heavy on the people. He did not want to lay another burden. He lifted their burden just a little by leading them in generosity. Leaders lead their people in generosity as well. Now, giving is a tricky thing. Giving is, is, is a tricky thing to talk about. We, we are called to give in secret. That is, not in order to be seen by others. We don't give, we don't put our offering and say like, I just wanted to announce uh, how much I gave this morning. That's, we don't do it to be seen by others. Our giving is unto the Lord. 
So we don't commend leaders who blatantly brag about what they give. But I don't think that's what we have here with Nehemiah, right? Nehemiah is leading his people. He's saying, I am making sacrifices for my people. As a part of our evaluation for potential leaders in the church, we ought to note that they have a reputation for generosity. Not an amount of giving, though that can be telling, but a generosity of spirit that is willing to give of resources, money, time, energy for the good of the body. If we set somebody before you as a potential leader of the church and you're like, oh, wow, surprise, surprise, that is unbelievable. That, that guy's never paid any attention to me in my life. I don't even know that guy's a part of the body. It's concerning. Leaders who are stingy, leaders who do not give of themselves until it hurts, they can set the tone for an entire body. We are called to remember that Jesus became poor for our sake so that we might become rich in Him and willing to sacrifice for His name to be glorified. Another part of this generosity of spirit is that the Lord, we acknowledge, when we give, the Lord knows. The Lord sees, right? In Scripture, throughout this, Nehemiah, again, in verse 15, refers to, I did not do so. I didn't, I didn't demand the tax from these people. Why? Because of the fear of God. And then this chapter ends with Nehemiah saying what? Remember for what? My good. Oh my God, all that I have done for this people. Remember for my good, oh my God, all that I have done for this people. Fear of the Lord is a childlike trust that He will take care of us and He will reward us. That the reward we could have for him, from Him for our faithful obedience is better than what we are giving up. When you lay down your rights for the good of another, when you sacrificially give for the good of the body, the Lord knows. One of the things that can get lost in our heart toward giving is that the Lord is gracious to reward His children for their faithful stewardship of what He has given us. That's actually really crazy, right? Because whose stuff is it? It's all His stuff, right? And yet, He is gracious to reward His children for the way we faithfully handle what He's given us. It's all His. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And Jesus said also in Matthew 6, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Nehemiah's generosity and trust that the Lord saw and knew was a model for his people. He had received from the Lord and he was going to give as unto the Lord and let the Lord handle what needed to come from it. But remembering, 
When I give, I don't have to worry. Am I going to have food tomorrow? Am I going to have shelter? Am I going to have clothing? He said, I will. And he hasn't stopped being faithful to that promise yet, has he? I was just thinking as we start to move toward the Lord's table, uh, what are some of the things that keep you from generosity? Two thoughts, two, two things came to my mind. For some, it may be greed, and we need to contend with this in our own hearts. What's mine is mine. And I should get as much as I can. And if other people can't get what I have, that's their problem. That's their fault. They probably messed up somewhere along the line. Or maybe it's not money. Maybe it's time and energy. I'm greedy with that. That's my time. My calendar. That's me time. I do with it what I want. I'm the captain of my ship. I have to seize the day. I have to live it up. I have to make the most of it for me. Because who knows when it's going to run out. So some of us have greed. And we need to contend with that in our own hearts. I know I need to. Even the most generous people need to deal with remaining greed. For some, it might be fear. If I give this, what will I have left? What, what if I'm not provided for? Do you ever have the thought, wouldn't it be nice if somebody just gave me a check for everything I've given away in my life? Somebody walked in and said, hey, congratulations, 20 years of faithful giving. Here's a check for everything you've ever given us. But what does that reflect? It's as if what I've given has been wasted. And it's not. As I was preparing for this sermon, I came across an old hymn by John Newton. It's called, uh, Though Troubles Assail. Do you know this one? I'm going to read it to you. Though troubles assail us and dangers affright, though close friends should fail us and foes all unite, yet one thing secures us, whatever betide, the promise assures us, the Lord will provide. The birds without garner or storehouse are fed. From them let us learn to trust God for our bread. His saints what is fitting shall never be denied, so long as it is written, the Lord will provide. We all may like ships by the tempest be tossed on perilous deeps, but we cannot be lost. Though Satan enrages the wind and the tide, yet Scripture engages, the Lord will provide. His call we obey like Abram of old. We know not the way, but our faith makes us bold. For though we are strangers, we have a sure guide. And trust in all dangers, the Lord will provide. When Satan assails us to stop up our path, and pale courage fails us, we triumph by faith. He cannot take from us, though oft he has tried, this heart-cheering promise, the Lord will provide. He tells us we're weak and our hope is in vain. The good that we seek, we will never obtain. But when such suggestions our graces have tried, this answers all questions. The Lord 
will provide. No strength of our own, no goodness we claim. Yet since we have known the great Savior's name, in this our strong tower, for safety we hide. The Lord is our power. The Lord will provide. When life sinks apace and our death is in view, the word of His grace shall then comfort us through. No fearing or doubting with Christ on our side, we hope to die shouting, the Lord will provide. Amen. Sacrifice for the good of the people and the success of the mission can be scary or make us feel like we're missing out on something. But be reminded, brothers and sisters, that the Lord will provide. He will ensure the success of the mission. He will ensure the provision for all of His people. None of our sacrifices in His name are wasted. They will have their reward. Here in this chapter, we get a foreshadowing of why we have such a hope. As remarkable as Nehemiah's generosity it is, is consider the lavish generosity of the Lord Jesus. He who came from on high, the eternal Son of God, He by whom all things were created, He who upholds all things by the word of His power, King of kings, Lord of lords, He left His high position to dwell among us. He made Himself nothing, taking the form of a servant. More than that, though He never did anything wrong, not once. He had no need of repentance, and yet he humbled himself to the point of death on a cross. Why did he do that? Why did he humble himself to the point of death on a cross? The scriptures say, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he bore, poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for transgressors. He did it to bear the transgression and sin of all who believe, to provide richly for the undeserving. Do you believe that today? We are without hope in our natural state. We will not be invited to the table of the Lord in glory. We stand to inherit only death and destruction, yet the Lord Jesus bought us back at great cost to Himself. The cost of His own life that we might share in His table now and for all of eternity. We know that our hope is secure because He died and rose from the grave, securing the hope of God's people forever by triumphing over sin and even death itself. Now all whose trust is in Christ can feast at His table, reminded 
that if he died to secure something so great as our eternal safety and rescue, and if he rose to show that he has such authority, what good thing is he going to keep from us? When will he fail to provide for us? What need will he not meet? And how that frees us up to lay down everything we have by his grace and say, do do with it what you want. Do with it as you please. It's all yours for your glory. Come to the table this morning, brothers and sisters, reminded of the lavish grace and the abundant provision of your faithful God. Would you pray with me? Thank you, Father, for giving us your Son. Thank you for your saving grace and mercy. Thank you that for our sakes, the Lord Jesus became poor, that we might become rich in him. Help us, Father to honor you in all that we say and do. Thank you that we can come to your table as a tangible reminder of your sacrifice for us. In Jesus' name, amen.